what's working on purpose anyway? Each week we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest potential. Business can be such a force for good in the world, elevating humanity. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration to help usher in this world we all want, working on purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Hi there. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. By way of introduction, if we don't know each other, I'm a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose, organizational logotherapist, inspirational speaker, social scientist, and author. You can learn more about me at two websites, elisecortez.com or gusto-now.com. A quick shout out to our, our sponsor before we go on. I know them well. They're, this is right up our alley. It's WorkProud. WorkProud helps companies build cultures where employee employees are proud of their work and proud of their company. By leveraging mobile technologies, the WorkProud team will help you design and implement a recognition platform that aligns with your company's values, goals, and objectives. What I know from my work is everyone wants to know they matter, and this is a way for you to help to make sure that they know that. With us today is Dan Berger. He is the president and CEO of NAFQ, also known as National Association of Federally Insured Credit Unions, and also an author, economist, and one of Washington's top lobbyists. He is credited with bringing national attention to key policy issues while ensuring NAFQ's members meet policymakers at the highest levels of government. We'll be talking about his perspective on leadership, namely servant in nature, how he advocates hiring and managing a team, and the importance of nurturing culture in these COVID times of working remotely. He's joined today from Washington, D.C. Dan, welcome to Working on Purpose. Thank you, Dr. Cortez. My pleasure. It's so great to have you. I really appreciate being able to speak with thought leaders about how they're actually living what it is we're trying to create in this program, Dan. This whole thing is really designed to help companies to create cultures of meaning that are anchored in that place where people actually want to come to work and thrive and where inspirational leaders make it happen. So your perspective and living it is really important to share. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So you've got quite an interesting, distinguished compilation of of things about you that I find compelling, of course. I love that you're an author, economist, and of course, a lobbyist. And you square yourself very strongly as a servant leader. And I really find that attractive and compelling and, of course, aligned with that. So you share a little bit about your background and why is servant leadership so important to who you are and how you do your work? Uh, Make a long story short, I grew up in Gainesville, Florida. I've been a lobbyist since I graduated from undergrad at Florida State University, uh, worked mostly in financial services, lobbying in state legislatures, as well as Washington, D.C. Uh, took a couple years off, earned my master's degree from Harvard University, uh, and then came back to D.C. to be chief of staff for a congresswoman from Florida and uh, just kept lobbying when I left Capitol Hill and uh, was offered and appointed the CEO position in NAPU. And everything is, for me, it, it is servant leadership. It, it's all about taking care of our staff. And then we take care of our staff, and in turn, they take care of our members or our customers. And we, you walk into the lobby at NAFQ, there's a big sign on the wall, and it says, our staff is our most valuable asset. And it's one thing to have signs and motivational posters and stuff like that, but you have to have authentic servant leadership. You have to back it up with action, and, and that's, you know, that's the culture that's the benefits 
Uh, we managed by walking around, or we used to uh, pre-pandemic. <laughs> um, but it's a that's 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 the crux of it. We're, take focus on the culture uh, of your organization or your company, and then everything else seems to fall in place. It takes time. Uh, there's a lot of frustration with it, um, but it, it, it works. It, culture is king in what you're trying to do in growing a company. No question about it. Completely aligned with that. In fact, that's why we're going to dedicate the last segment talking more about that. So hold that thought for now. Two things really quick, though, Dan, that I want to call out. One is when I'm out speaking about the importance of cultivating passion, inspiration and purpose. And that's what my my book is uh, is about, which is Purpose Ignited. I talk about the importance of really honoring that we have this one precious life and you are certainly doing something with your one precious life. And I'm so glad to know you. Well, I appreciate it. I do try to put a lot into each day. Um, I, I am kind of a workaholic, but that's one of the things that I work real hard on, uh, especially as a father of a 16 year old daughter who's not only academically bright, but an extraordinary athlete. And so I have to force myself uh, to make time for, for my wife and daughter and my family. But that, that balance is really, really crucial. And that only good, I think really genuinely good leaders, not speaking of me, but the ones that, uh, I, that are my mentors, they all have a very balanced uh, life and uh, I'm trying to emulate that. I really appreciate that. And uh, some of the things I want to talk with you further about are going to talk more and speak more to that. But before we get into that, I just have to grab quickly and just briefly, if we can, why did you become a lobbyist? I don't think I've known anybody or had anybody on the show who has, has performed as such. If you open up my high school yearbook, I knew my senior in high school, I wanted to be a lobbyist. I was a political junkie. I worked on political campaigns in junior high. I ran campaigns in high school and college. And being a lobbyist is one of those things that it's a who you know business. And then the more people you know, more campaigns you work on and the individuals, he or she gets, gets elected, uh, the more people you know and your political power kind of grows a, a little bit. But for me, it's like three-dimensional chess. It's that perfect, uh, perfect convergence of policy, politics, and business. And so it, it's just it's a three-dimensional chess match that you're working that you're working on, and it, it's a blast. I, I, love, I have the best job in the world, and and being a lobbyist, if you're part of the political process. I, I can point out to statutes in various states that have my fingerprints on it, or at the federal level as well, the federal statutes, uh, all trying to make in, in this case. Uh, the regulatory legislative environment better for credit unions so that in turn they can serve 123 million American consumers with arguably the best banking services uh, out there. They're not predatory lenders, they're not payday, they're not the big banks, uh, they're credit unions and they take care of their members. And to be focused on something like that and be part of the political process while doing it, it's terrific. Yeah, I love the passion, I love the impact, it's fantastic. Um, well, as you know, I, as I'm prone to do, we spoke about this in, in the introductory call. I do read the the books of my guests cover to cover, and I did that with yours as well. And I want to talk about a couple of things that stood out throughout the course of this conversation. The first thing I want to talk about that I absolutely love with regard to leadership, you say, and I quote, truly effective leaders are distinguished by a high degree of emotional intelligence, which includes self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skill. Yes, yes, yes. Um I, I really see that as the hallmark of distinguishing factors. But you put that in your book, particularly. So why was that so important to include and why do you stand by that? I think one of the most valuable aspects of any leader, I don't care if you're a manager of a subway franchise, a CEO of a major corporation, 
your EQ is so incredibly important. It doesn't, it, it can't be fraudulent. You have to authentically care about your team and, and your colleagues. I mean, you have to genuinely show it. And then and that's with, you know, benefits and, and celebrating little victories and large victories. And you got to walk the walk. And pre-pandemic, we managed by walking around. I'm talking about the high fives and the fist pumps and, and that, that kind of stuff. It matters. And you got to do that. But that's why you got to have a high EQ. And we all know people who don't. And it's not that they can't be successful. Um, they make it more difficult for their people around them to be successful if they have a lower EQ, I have found. I would agree. Two things really quick on that for our listeners. So one is I personally, as, as a management consultant, been called in many times to organizations really on the guise of let's do this leadership program when in fact we really want to deal with the problem child in the room, which is the leader. Um, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times. I'm grateful that I've got to be able to help them, but then it comes a matter of really saying what's really so here. And then the second thing is those particularly low EQ leaders, as um, Tim Spiker would say, he was on the show earlier, they actually leave a terrible mark on people's lives. They then, those people who are on the other end of that low EQ person come home and complain to their significant other and they take it out on their children and everybody else. There's a lot of losers when we do not cultivate EQ as a leader. No, I, absolutely. And, and we all know who these people are. And we focus uh, at NAPU on hiring for attitude and aptitude. And it's extremely important because if you have somebody like that in an organization, whether it's a, a low performer or, or someone who's just um, not a good team player, it bring, it's a cancer within not only that division or department, but the entire organization, because everybody knows who that person is. And that shows everybody there, your high performers, the level of stuff, and pardon my French, crap you're willing to tolerate within your company or organization, and you can't have that. If you have a C worker in there and you got all these A workers here, and you tolerate that C worker, that C minus worker, and you've given them training and everything else, and they don't change, you've got to make that difficult decision to move because they're affecting those A workers and dragging those A workers down. It's so, so important. It really is. And part of that is is in what I've found, Dan, is uh, coaching those leaders to help them make those tough calls to coach those leaders or to remove them from the organization. It's as simple as it is. And that gets, by the way, to the next thing I want to talk about, which I love that you say in your book, is you. I appreciate your remark that you say that some CEOs call themselves not chief executive officers, but chief energy officers. Love that. Yeah, you have to be the, the not only the person who holds people accountable, but you have to be the chief cheerleader, the chief energy. Uh, when things are tough, that's really when you have to step up and have the enthusiasm and the leadership to go, hey, we're going to get through this. Is it tough? Yeah, we did this last year. 2020 was a very difficult year for our members and for NAFQ. We came out with flying colors because we worked really hard focusing our, our, our content and our products and our services on helping our members get through that pandemic. And to have that passion, you want passionate employees to do it, but it starts at the top and it starts with the members of the management team. Uh, they also have to have buy-in. Everybody has to be rowing in the same direction and have the same energy. It doesn't mean rah, rah. I, I know I have a tendency to be overbearing and high energy like all the time, but it's but everybody has to be rowing the right way with that positive attitude that we're going to hit these challenges head on and, and these headwinds head on, and we're going to be successful. We're going to have to work hard, but we'll get through it. 
Mm-hmm. I found actually, and I certainly understand this and empathize, and I work with a lot of leaders to help them develop this, but I heard from a lot of people, Dan, last year that they their leaders were missing in action. You know, they were cowering under the desk, as as most of us are, would want to do, right? You don't know, what, what where did this thing come from? Well, how do I handle this? And so, you know, being a leader who can be out in front and saying, hey, maybe we don't have all the answers, but we will get through this. We got this. We'll work yeah, it out together. There's three things you have to do. You, you nailed it, though. There's three things a leader has to do, especially in a crisis. Is communicate, communicate, and communicate. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and seriously, and you have to do it over and over again. You think they're they're listening, but they may not be hearing. And there's something when you say something, it may be the first time they've heard it, or you say it the second time. And what is it the advertising executives say? You get to repeat things eight or nine times for it to really uh, gel. So same thing when you're talking to your colleagues or your staff. You have to continue to have that communication. You have to continue to be seen. You have to continue to have uh, celebrations of small victories and stuff. You've got to keep them motivated and, and enthusiastic. And it's, it, it's tough to do sometimes. But as a leader, you ask for the chair. You want to be a leader of an organization or a division or, or a department. It's your responsibility to, to step up your game, especially in times of crisis. Yeah, and we're gonna, I have another question for you here, but you know, I had the privilege of working with several high-level leaders during this time because they didn't know what to do. They needed a hand up, and as we all do, some kind of another perspective on this, and who, who's been through this before? I know I haven't, and, and so I know one of the things that you talk about, which I'll get to in just a second, is that you do also use mentors, but I do want to talk a bit more about communication because it is so profoundly important. And I really thought this was great for our listeners and viewers to talk about this next, Dan. But what you say in your book is you say the best leaders are the are, are the best communicators, but not necessarily the most polished communicators. And you say you don't have to be a golden-throated orator to make your point. That's got to be so reassuring for people. You just have to connect on a human level in an authentic and convincing way, end quote. Completely agree. And what I love about what you've done there, Dan, is you've opened it so people don't feel like, oh, my God, I have to be, you know, Dan Rather or somebody that has the amazing presence and, and the ability to execute verbally. Some of the best leaders uh, across the country and across the globe are introverts. They're not necessarily the, the raw, raw, high energy folks necessary, but you have to be a good communicator. Whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, you have to show people what the mission of the organization is, what the vision is, and do it all through the filter of the values of that company. And then you just keep talking about it and communicating. Talk about what the strategy is behind the things that you're trying to execute or implement. But you have to be able to communicate no matter what your personality is, you know. Uh, I'm an ETSJ or whatever, and, and that's what I am. But if you're an INTJ, you still should be able to communicate and explain what your vision is, the strategy behind that vision, and be able to execute. But you have to be able to communicate uh, both verbally and in written form, or you won't be successful. It's so Communication is a key, and quite frankly, it's something I have to work on all the time. And when I was a young CEO, uh, I had an executive coach. And I worked on it all the time because my communication style wasn't being received uh, how I like it to be received. And so you have to really think about your audience. Mm -hmm. I think it's an ongoing thing. Communication is, takes a tremendous amount of effort and skill and it's developed over our lifetime. So to that end, one of the other things that you said in our first call, which I really appreciated, is that you said that you, you're involved with a mentor group and that, that this has been critical over the course of your career. 
So the, my question to you, because I, I believe everybody needs a coach or a mentor group. I don't care what you're up to. You can't do it by yourself. You can't get there by yourself. You're too, you're, you're limited in a mindset and all kinds of things. So the first question I have about that is how did you find this group? And the secondly, I'd like you to just share a bit about how has this group served you? Uh, I reached out to six CEOs that are in the Washington, D.C. area, all very successful. All have been doing it. I did this right when I became CEO, was appointed as CEO. Reached out to six CEOs of other trade associations, not in the financial services industry, but very large, successful uh, operators. And they had been in it for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And I said, hey, would you be my mentor? I'm new and I I have an idea. Uh, I'm an economist by education. I can read balance sheets. I I know the organization because before I was appointed CEO, I worked as the head lobbyist for seven years. And, And so I have a pretty good feel of the staff and everything else. But I, I need to I need to be aware of my blind spots. What did mm-hmm. what happened to you? Help me look out from the blind spots, and they, they were extremely helpful. And uh, and I, I, I use them to this day, and, and we talk on a regular basis. And actually, the, what was really interesting during the pandemic, the script flipped. They were calling me because we we were kind of public about some of the success we're having, growing membership and stuff in the middle of a pandemic. And they're like, what in the heck are you doing? And so it was, it was interesting. It, it kind of switched. But I still rely on them uh, on a monthly, quarterly basis, quite regularly. I really applaud that, Dan. And learning is forever. Perfect. And with that, let's take our first break. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We're on the air with Dan Berger, who is the president and the CEO of NAFQ, also known as National Association of Federally Insured Credit Unions. We've been talking a bit about his perspective on leadership and the importance of communication and being a servant leader. After the break, we're going to talk about his perspective on hiring and managing people. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thank you for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. I alluded to this earlier, but I do want to share with you something happened in the pandemic, and that is I had a baby. Um, It's actually not a human baby. It's a book. (laughs) It's called Purpose Ignited, How Inspiring Leaders Unleash Passion and Innovate Cause. And I really wrote it to turn turn readers on to themselves, their own passion, their inspiration, their purpose. And the coolest thing is hearing from people who say, oh, my gosh, I am. I am turned on and how it changes their life. So that's why I wrote it. And I hope you'll get something from it as well. You can find it on Amazon and my website. If you're just joining the program, my guest is Dan Berger, who is president and CEO of NAFQ, also known as National Association of Federally Insured Credit Unions. He joins us today from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. 
So Dan, for this segment, I there were several things in your book that I really found myself, you know, this is where back in the day when we still were on airplanes, I used to embarrass myself because I would read my guest books and I would get really excited about what they say and I'd be nodding furiously and underlining and people on planes would look at me like, oh my God, she's crazy. Well, now I do that by myself. So you still embarrass me in my own in my own in my own home as I read your book, because I was so emphatic about your points. And one of the things that you talk about is passion, of course, and that's one of my things. And I loved how you said that the late Steve Jobs said that when he hired people, he did that for their passion. He looked for people who who he said, "quote I love this," wanted to put a dent in the universe. Yes to that. Completely aligned with that. So why is passion important for you? You want people that are willing, and I hate the term, but I'll use it, to think outside the box. I want people to have the energy and the passion to break something, break the process, break the system, look at new ways to do things. When I became CEO, I, I of course, had the same staff and we had some folks on, We've always, and they asked me this, and I said, why are we doing this? Oh, we've always done it that way, and, and that phrase, drove me crazy. They were allowed to say it once. <laughs> right. You gotta think outside the box. And but you want that passion. You want that enthusiasm for the position. But for us it's a greater good. Our mission is to strengthen credit unions so they can grow and thrive and in turn help American consumers. And so that's our mission. And that's what we exist for as a trade or, or association in Washington DC. You can't be an effective advocate uh, in Washington without the passion and truly believing it. Yes, there's a billion hired guns. You read about it in the newspapers all the time, hired gun lobbyists and that stuff like that. You pay someone enough money and they can go out and do pretty much just about anything. But if you want genuine, authentic help and, and someone to be uh, have your back and be in your corner at all times, you're looking for that attitude, aptitude, enthusiasm and your word passion and, and you have to have it or the organization they get burned out and it stalls out because there's something a little more to the, the the core of the soul of the individual when they have that passion for that mission and uh, it matters and it's hard to find it, it's very difficult and so that's the reason we hire slow and we fire fast and uh, mm -hmm. it's really important to get the right people on the bus it is, Dan. And what you're saying, so as an organizational logotherapist, L-O-G-O therapist, that is really existential psychology. And it's the whole notion that meaning is the ultimate motivator. And when we actually can exercise our creative values, which I call passion, that's energizing. So what I'm up to, Dan, is helping organizations to create cultures that are anchored in meaning so that it, more employees can experience that passion. So they are energized. They bring their best. So I suspect that's exactly what you're doing, and that's why it's working. So kudos for that. I love that. Besides all that, it's just a lot more fun to live life with passion, let's face it, right, than dragging yourself through. Yeah, and one of our mantras uh, uh, in, inside NAFCU is we provide extreme member service, and that's kind of our motivator. That if, if you get lost in our phone tree, uh, the young man in the mailroom can help you as much as I can or someone from the member service. Throughout the organization, uh, it's flattened out in terms of providing member service and being responsive to our members. And, and that when you have that brand and you have that value proposition, it spreads and it's word of mouth. Hey, I gave Dan a call or sent him an email. He called me right back. If you have that responsiveness and it's part of your entire culture throughout the entire organization, it really, really helps you grow. And quite frankly, helps you weather those headwinds and challenges that every company and every organization and every person, quite frankly, uh, eventually runs into.
Mm. Totally in alignment with that. I love that. That's so so refreshing. I can't even tell you. And, and then another thing that you say in your book that I also align with and find refreshing is this little thing called attitude. And you have to understand, Dan, that I started my management consulting career more than 20 years ago in recruiting. So, you know, I know very well how hiring managers want to hire the Ivy League. And, they, and then, of course, what happens is the applicant tracking system then does this really thorough job of spitting out a lot of applicants that would otherwise be great. But one of the things I love, and I want to say this for our listeners and viewers of what you write in your book, you talk about Mark Murphy, who's the author of Hiring for Attitude and how he tracked 20,000 new hires and discovered that whenever new hires failed, 89% of the time, it was attitudinal reasons, and only 11% of the time, it was for lack of skill. Extremely telling. So I really want to, and, and you talk about urging employers to focus on whether a candidate is motivated to learn new skills, think innovatively, cope with failure, assimilate feedback, and collaborate with, term, with teammates. Completely in line with that, Dan. That's so, I think that's spot on. But say more about where that came from and how it lives for you. Well, we all, there's some people, and we provide training for, for our staff at, at NAFQ, and we all know this. This is going to sound terrible, doctor, but I'm going to say it. There's some people out there that's just part of their DNA. We all have bad days. We're grumpy. But there's some people out there, you could give them the big house on the beach and a billion dollars, and they're still going to be grumpy. With the training, you could try to smooth out the rough edges, but they don't have that positive passion or, um, or attitude that you want to be part of your company your organization, and you have to discover that within the hiring process before you even bring them on, because you're talking about a cancer and an energy zapper within a company or a division or an organization. So that attitude is so incredibly important. And, and But you want someone with, with the aptitude too. You want the gray matter between the ears, but if they don't have the exact skill set you want, I can train you. I can get you the training. I can get you the education. But if, you're, if you have a poor attitude, um, it, 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 you just you, you just bring down the entire company. You, the organization it shows you're willing to tolerate a bad attitude, and it, it's 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 painful to watch. And uh, we try not to have those uh, within our organization. But every organization does, and uh, we try to weed them out pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I'm right with you, Dan. I think that's fantastic. Another thing that we align on that I think is critically important to talk about today, and that's trust. And you also talk about that quite quite deeply in your book. And in fact, you showcase uh, JetBlue Airways chairman, Joel Peterson, who you say says, empowered workers can sense they are trusted. For most people, the feeling of being trusted leads to an increased desire to be trustworthy. And this virtuous cycle can take your team to great and interdependent heights. Completely agree. So when we give trust, we get it back in folds. Yeah, the, the trust is one of those things that it's so hard uh, to develop, and it's and it's and it's it has to be authentic, it has to be genuine, and but it's empowering your team uh, to make decisions. Like the managers, the members of my management team, my colleagues, they have hiring authority. They, they have autonomy to do the hiring and firing uh, at will. I don't have to approve it or disapprove it. They they have the ability to bring on. They're held accountable. If you bring on someone with a bad attitude, that's your fault. And you're going to be held accountable for it. And so we have a, we have a no jerk policy uh, at NAFU. And so, and if you hire a jerk, then you just became the biggest jerk because you brought another jerk within the organization. And so we really focus on that hiring for attitude and aptitude. We talk about it all the time, talk about it at the management team meetings. Uh, my colleague in HR, she's all over that. And so what we do for, 
from a screening process, we do situational awareness, almost case studies to kind of drill down to see how they act in different scenarios, as well as ask them, you know, what, what failures have you had in, in past jobs or different uh, scenarios and situations? And you can kind of get granular and you can find out if their attitude is genuine. Like there's a lot of good actors and actresses out there that can kind of get through that first layer of questioning. It's always that third, fourth, fifth question when you're drilling down that you can really kind of pinpoint where that attitude really, really is. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to get geeky on you, Dan, because I can't help it. That's who I am. I, I am a social scientist. Um, and so why does trust work, listeners and viewers, is because when someone trusts us, it creates a, a psychological uh, um, enticement in, in our brains and that we it, it feels good to be trusted. So we want to make sure and do keep our behavior in line with that so that we continue to get that trust. We continue to get that feeding. Um, so quickly what that looks like personally in my in my in my own life when I was a kid growing up. My parents trusted me immensely and I would have cut off both of my arms to lose that trust. And so when I did do something where I lost it, like I went to an R-rated movie when they told me not to. And then, of course, in the small town that I was in, they found out <laughs> I grounded myself for two weeks. So <laughs> that's what accountability looks like. Right. So inside the in, in the workplace, when we trust our employees that they're not having to clock in and show that they're there physically, a lot of times they'll work longer and harder. So that's just a simple example, but it looks like you were about to say something, Dan, to that. No, I, I, had, a, I had a similar experience when I became CEO. Uh, the, one of the marketing people came in to my office and put down our annual report. Just like every company, we do an annual report, and she puts it down, the example of it, and all these photos and stuff and color palettes and everything else, and I'm like, what are you doing? She goes, oh, well, my predecessor, would pick the photos, pick the colors, and, and and help lay it out. And I, that's what I pay you for. And she froze. I mean, she was mm -hmm. so there's always someone else doing it. And I'm like, listen, as long as you spell our board members correctly and you put the financials in it accurately, we're done. There's nothing that you can do to bring down our company with the annual report. Those are only two things I'm re requiring. I don't care if you make it pink or just pick the colors. Go. I trust you. Have it. And it. it it froze her for a little bit, and then she came out with a great product. Would, would it have been something I would have designed? Probably not. We all write differently. We all like different types of art and stuff. But she did. A, she did a wonderful job, and we moved on. But trust—you have to develop it, and you have to reinforce it, mm -hmm. and you just feeding it because you go. Hey, I trust you. Do it. And I like your recommendation. I, I trust your recommendation. Rock and roll. Let's go. And so that, but it takes time. It does. And, and, you know, it is a back and forth deal for sure. And but yet when we know an organization, when trust is present, it's very palpable. And, um, and and to that end, I think there's one other way that it gets expressed, which is the last point I wanted to make in this segment, Dan. And that is how you talk about how uh, this notion of, of your employees being ambassadors for the business. And from my vantage point, I, when I did work for other other people, I, by the way, I work for myself now today, and I am about the best boss I've ever had. I've had some great ones, but but I always felt that I was an ambassador for the business that I worked for. And I think that the workplace and business would be profoundly upgraded if more leaders embraced what you said in this book about encouraging your employees to be seen and act themselves as ambassadors for your company. Can you say more about that for the credit union? Yeah, it, it, absolutely. And, and we talk about that's also part of the hiring process. You are part of the organization. You're part of the company. Um, as cliche as it is, you're part of the family. And so you own this. You're part of this. So when you do something, 
do it with passion, do it with integrity, but sit there and, and you're a face of the organization. The gentleman in the mailroom is one of the nicest young men you'll ever meet in your life, as well as our general counsel, who's one of the smartest women I've ever had the pleasure of working with, but all that kind of stuff, they're all ambassadors. No matter where you are in the food chain of the company, what you say and, and, and how you act uh, with your colleagues, how you act with our members or customers at, at a company, it all matters. It all trickles down. Everybody has to be rowing in the same direction or it's not going to work. It goes back to that, you know, that one C employee that is grumpy and a terrible attitude and it's just part of their DNA and makeup. That's a cancer. That person's going to have an interaction with a member or another colleague and affect the entire organization. It doesn't happen typically overnight unless it's a really, really bad employee, but it kind of is a cancer, grows slowly, and it just destroys a company from within. I mean, to, to be that ambassador and, and to talk good about your colleagues and, and your company is, is a necessity, and, it, and it, it's an effective tool. But on the flip side of that, you have to provide the training and the tools and the resources to help that employee to be successful too. So if you got all those bases covered, it's, it's a magic formula to have your employees be ambassador to a company or an organization. Mm. You know, and that's such a great illustration of why it is that I collaborate with WorkProud, our sponsor, because they're all about helping or helping people to create an org, helping companies create an organization where employees can be proud of their work. So I love what we're talking about here. It's so, it's so my jam. And with that, our last break, I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Dan Berger, who is the president and CEO of NAFQ, also known as the National Association of Federally Insured Credit Unions. We've been talking a bit about his approach to hiring and managing people. After the break, we're going to talk more about his perspective on the importance of nurturing culture, especially in these pandemic times. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thank you for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. Uh, one of the things I wanted to showcase that's important during these pandemic times is the, is the importance, of being, importance of being agile. And one of the things that we did here is where we used to get on airplanes to go deliver programs in Latin America and other places where I speak Spanish and Portuguese, now we don't do that. So we created the Gusto Now platform to deliver our programs on that space in English, Spanish, and Portuguese. And that's where now we deliver the vitally inspired program in those languages too. So it's so amazing what happened. That's part of one of our responses to the pandemic. So how fun is that? 
mucho gusto. Um, if, you're, if you're just joining us, my guest is Dan Berger. He's joining us from Washington, D.C. He is the president and CEO of NAFQ, National Association of Federally Insured Credit Unions. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. So for this last section segment here, Dan, I really wanted to focus more on really what we have been experiencing this pandemic. And you have a new, unique perspective that I thought was interesting when we, when we spoke on the phone about culture, which we'll get to here. But one of the things to kick us off for this section that I thought was interesting from your book, and you talk about Dan Pink, who I revere and also talk about in my book, because I love him and I've met him a couple of times. Um, you say, the he says, the aptitudes that, well, that Dan Pink identifies as being important in this new conceptual age are the very ones we're seeing in Gen X and Y workers and younger credit union members, which are an appreciation for design, storytelling, seeing the big picture, understanding and caring about others, having fun and creating joy and finding meaning in work. All of that is my space. But why did you feel important to segment those particular areas? Um, because those are the core of a successful culture and all, mm -hmm. all those, and you have to check them all. You can't do mm -hmm. one of them, mm -hmm. you can't do two of them. They all have to be checked off to create a culture uh, that thrives and, 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 and to have fun, especially the younger generation. There's a difference that the, the uh, military type mentality, you know, throwing a hammer at a problem doesn't work. It, it's better to, you know, build consensus and explain. In, in the Gen Z uh, uh, generation and, and even the millennials, who are not that young anymore, by the way, they, they want to know the why behind things. Yeah. And then yeah, it takes more time. It's not you just can't order people around. You know, it just it doesn't work and it's not effective. You may be able to do it for a little bit, but they're going to end up leaving you. And it's just it's not an effective organization or company to be operating that way. So you want to create a culture where they're being included and they're part of something bigger. And then we talk about it at our, we have a monthly all staff meeting that all the employees uh, go to. We have a monthly management team meeting uh, that we're all the division heads are, are a part of. And we talk about it at every meeting is that we are, we are here to help credit unions grow and thrive. And, and then you've heard me say it in terms so they can help 123 million American consumers get the financial services they need and deserve. It's not the big banks. It's not predatory lenders. It's not all that kind of stuff. It's it's non not for profit financial institutions taking care of the American consumer, and it's a, it's something bigger. They can go work at any trade associations. There's thirty thousand of them here in Washington D.C. They can all get jobs anywhere else. Okay, that's easy to do. Everybody wants to pick off the the best in, in their organization, but if they have a higher purpose, you create a culture where your mission is genuine. It's authentic, and you do it by action, and, and, you, and, you, and you, you walk the walk. Right. I love that. And, of course, the storytelling piece and the communication piece we talked about earlier is so important because from my vantage point and what I talk about in, in my speaking and my book and my consulting is then we, we activate the leader to make sure that they're able to speak to and help each individual person recognize how their job actually threads through that purpose to allow your organization, your credit union, to serve and lift the boats of your community. Now, when you start realizing the work that you're doing, you individually helped raise your community. How amazing is that? I can go home with a smile on my face and feel proud about myself for that. Oh, absolutely. And then you want them to feel good. You want them to take ownership. And that's something that we're, we're kind of unusual. Not, not many organizations. We share our monthly financials. We, we have company-wide organizational goals set by my board of directors, who are my bosses. I have 11 men and women, all credit union CEOs, 
all very bright. They set the organizational goals and we track it very closely. We know exactly where we are at any given time. And uh, they're part of it. We're, we're close to this goal. We're missing this goal. And they're all part of it. They know, where we, they know to a penny how we're doing as a company. That is awesome, Dan. I love that. I love that transparency. So important. And and sharing, again, that kind of goes back to the trust piece. You trust your employees and you're to be able to have this information, to understand it, to use it and be part of the solution forward. And I think that's fantastic. I appreciate it. It's, it's been fun. It, it, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we work on it every single day and it's, uh, it's headed in the right direction. I couldn't be more proud of my colleagues. That's awesome. Well, one of the things we spoke about when we first got together, and again, I want to give a shout out to you as well, and, and one of your team members, Bobby Grant, who found me in the show and thought you might make a, a good guest, and of course you are, and you said right out of the gate, you said, I work for Bobby, and I just think that was, you had me at that at that statement, but then on the next thing that you said that I thought was so interesting and wanted to treat here is, you said that one of the things that you were concerned about in this in this pandemic is the degradation of culture or that possibility or potentiality as people continue to work from home in the pandemic. See more about that concern and what you're doing to address it. Yeah, that, that, that's that's probably the, the one thing that really keeps me up at night. Uh, of course, the safety of my staff and, and their families, of course, is, is paramount. But we worked so hard and invested so much time and money and resources in creating a, a very positive culture, a successful culture, and, it, and it's hard to do. We manage by walking around. I walk in, Bobby can tell you this uh, when you speak to him next. They had to, in their communications division, uh, not only did they have the best food in the building and snacks that so I'd go up there and, and loiter, they had a big bean bag. And they had a big bean bag in the middle of the typical, you know, artsy communications uh, division. And I would sit in it and we would chat and strategize and, and just talk and, you know, how things go and how's the new workout regimen that you're, you're on. And, and Bobby's a workout fanatic. And, you know, I, I grab tips from him and stuff like that. He also has the best beef jerky uh, in the world. But those kinds of conversations you have, you don't have those organic conversations anymore. That's what I'm talking about from a degradation. It, that concerns me. I mean, people pop into my office. Hey, I got an idea, Dan. And, and, and then we just kind of flush it out. And, and that organic chemistry and conversations and everything is what makes work fun, quite frankly. And, and uh, there, there are periods of time that ebbs and flows. I struggle a little bit in, in not being around people. I still go in the office. I'm at home now because I have a studio in my house for like last minute things like this and you know, invites like this or TVs, uh, you know, TV appearances and stuff. But I go to the office almost every single day just to see some people mm. and, and get that. I get the energy from my colleagues being there and we've created this culture and it's been so positive and they've done such a great job. We came out of a pandemic like gangbusters. And, and we really helped our members. Uh, NAFU's stronger than it's ever been. We had our third or fourth best year ever in the history of our, our association. And so during a pandemic. And so that's because of the culture in my colleagues working so hard. And I'm afraid that there's people struggling, you know, and, and I've got employees that I know are struggling. And we provide uh, mental health counseling and opportunities for that kind of stuff and additional training and stuff like that. We talk about it openly and we're trying to encourage people to take the vacation time. I'm cutting off vacation. You don't get to carry it over anymore. Okay. You get to carry over a little bit, 
but you have to use it. You have a generous vacation package for a reason. And that applies to me. My board requires me to take vacation time. If I don't take it, they're going to fire me. <laughs> I mean, they have to take vacation. It's so important for your mental health and your and your wellness that to, to take care of yourselves. Mm-hmm. But that's what concerns me, that degradation that we've worked so hard. We created this great organization and it's just how to maintain it. I, I see it fraying a little bit just because people are uncomfortable. We have a lot of uh, young single people that, that work and they'd be quarantined alone in, yeah. in your condo, your home. What a terrible, especially if you're a people person, what a terrible way to live for the last nine, 10 months. Very concerned. I really appreciate your empathy on that, Dan. That's so important. And to that end, I definitely wanted to ask you, I've been trying to ask any any of the leaders that come on is, what are a couple of the lessons that you've learned in this pandemic about leadership and business? Communicate, communicate, and communicate. (laughs) I I know I said it earlier, and and I I, uh, I don't want to repeat myself, but that's the biggest thing. My executive coach and I talk about it on a regular basis. It's the communication. It's more important now than ever before. You may think you're communicating enough. You need to communicate a hundred times more. And so you may be communicating enough when you're in the office or at the headquarters. And now that you're not, you can't do it all by e- uh, email. And so you have to go pick up a phone, get on the you know, on the video conference call. But you have to do it a lot, and it just—it doesn't work. You have to communicate. That's the thing that we focused on so hard, um, so much uh, in every division of NAFQ. And we tell our managers, you have to communicate. See how your staff is doing. If they need anything, do they need their little medicine ball, you know, bouncy seat that they had at the office? I'll deliver it to them. You need a second monitor for your computer? I'll deliver it to you. You tell us what you need so you can do your job and be effective and efficient while maintaining your health and well-being. But it's, um, I'm, I'm still, it's what keeps me up at night, doctor. I, I, can't, I can't tell you, I, I toss and turn thinking about uh, the culture eroding and um, it, it bothers me greatly. I, I really appreciate that. And I, that attention is, is, is huge, right? We, we focus on where we can make a difference. So, and to that, and this, is, this next question is, is going to speak to what I think we talked about in the beginning segment, which is the, your important, the importance of being part of a mentor group. And that is that you told me that you have this eternal reading habit. I wouldn't say a reading problem because I have the same one, but and we have that in common. So, of course, I have to ask you, what are you reading? Why? And what are you getting out of it? I'm a bibliophile and uh, I have thousands and thousands of uh, books. And uh, that's what I'm reading right now. Great ah. book. I just finished it. You see all my notes. I, I right have here. that book. Yes, I have that book. It's on my reading list. Excellent. It, it is terrific. And uh, and it, it took me a while to, to get through it, not because it's not interesting. It, it's really, really well written. It, it's just that uh, I had only so much time and it sort of took me a little longer than usual. But I always make notes and underline and highlight certain segments. Um, really good. A lot of empirical research on it. There's like five or six years of research uh, that's in this book. Um, I like it a lot and it's really helping with the work-life balance and how to work smarter and stuff. And it's really an effective book. I'd encourage you, if you're looking for a book to read, that's the one to pick up after yours, of course, doctor. 
Thank you very much for that, Dania. I, I easily read about 150 books a year, in part because I read any of my guests' um, books that come on. I, I also study for my logotherapy work ongoing. And of course, I'm writing my next book already, which is about activating passion and purpose. So I'm always studying for that. So I always have to ask what somebody's reading and if I need to quickly order that. So thank you for that. Um, we've come to the end of the of our conversation here largely, and I really have appreciated your perspectives around leadership, around how it is that you hire and, and manage people, and then also just frankly what's concerning you during this, this pandemic time. This show, you might know, Dan, is listened to by people across the world, and most people that tune in are looking to be able to be part of the solution to help create a culture where people can thrive and where leaders really do steward companies to serve their communities at the highest possible level. Knowing that, what would you like to leave our, our listeners and viewers with? I, I think the most important part is it's something that you mentioned is to create a culture for purpose. You know, you, you can but you have the hiring mechanism, hiring for attitude and, and aptitude, but to have a purpose and, and have a, a mission statement, and not just some little thing you put up on the wall or the whiteboard, but a genuine mission statement and a purpose for your organization. And it really, really helps. I, I've been at organizations they didn't, weren't even sure why they existed, you know, and it, it just, it, and it, and it, and it flounders. And it, mm-hmm. it, you know those companies and you know the organization, you've seen them, I've seen them, but if you sit there and, and you focus on having a positive culture, you hire positive, passionate people that have a great attitude and aptitude, but your organization overall has to have a communicated purpose. And if you have that purpose, uh, you'll be successful. Beautiful way to finish. And of course, you know, I could finish that sentence with you. So thank you so much for joining us and sharing your heart and your soul with us, Dan. It's been fantastic to have you and get to know you better. Thank you, Dr. Cortez. My pleasure. Absolutely. Listeners and viewers, if you want to learn more about Dan Berger and the work he and his team do at, at the Credit Union, go to nafq.org. That's N-A-F-C-U.org. And thanks again to our partnering sponsor, WorkProud, which helps companies build a platform where your workforce receives meaningful feedback and thanks for their work from people across your, your company as well. Um, last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch it via recorded podcast. We were on the air with Renee Cermak, who is a personal transformation expert, talking about her book, How to Be Your Biggest Fan, The Value and Power of High Self-Esteem. And we talked about my experience of participating in a week-long seminar her company offers and what that experience taught me. See you there. Remember that work is at least a third of our life, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously, leadership inspires impassioned performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose.